Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to a sub-series of Metaphors of EdTech, uh, where we revisit my previous book, 25 Years of EdTech, and I'm now updating it to 30 Years of EdTech. Previously, uh, when the book originally came out in 2018, a colleague, Clint Lalonde, uh, decided to set up a community project turn it into an audio book with a different person reading each chapter. You can see that over 25years.opened.ca. And Laura Pasquini set up a podcast called Between the Chapters with guests talking about that chapter each week. So I recommend visiting that. What I plan to do here is to republish the audiobook version with a preface from me, thinking about kind of how things have changed and whether I was still happy with that chapter and what's moved on since then, plus the extra five years uh, that takes us up to now. Welcome to another episode of 30 Years of EdTech, and now we're up to 2004. And the subject is Open Educational Resources, OER, a subject close to my heart. Um, the audiobook chapter which follows after this is read by Catherine Cronin, and the Between the Chapters podcast uh, features four people this time, a special lengthy edition, uh, which is Catherine Cronin, Judith Pete, Marin Deepwell, and Virginia Rhodes. So that's uh, worth listening to. So I think um, OER, particularly interesting, I think, to kind of revisit in the light of new developments. Uh, as I sit here on the uh, start of 2024, we've just held our 10th anniversary meeting uh, back in uh, October in Edmonton for the GoGN network, which is the Global OER Graduate Network. So the fact that we've been running that network um, for 10 years, which is a doctoral research network for um, people studying OER and OEP, Open Educational Practice, Open Education in general, I think the fact that it's been running for 10 years and has a really successful network and a big sort of important alumni have come out of that project and and it has a very strong presence across lots of conferences is a kind of testament to the importance of the subject itself and it's kind of kept going Uh, and we certainly had a lot of challenges with that network um, with that project when the pandemic came because we usually have a face-to-face meeting every year and so we had to kind of switch to much more online support and those kind of things and I think we got through that very well Uh, but I think uh, so you know so OER continues and, and persists, which is uh, in, in itself a success, I think. But I think there are some interesting challenges or opportunities for it now ahead. I think an obvious one is, is artificial intelligence. You know, we spent the past 20 odd years going, you know, how can we share good educational content? How do we get educators to upload their content to put a proper license on it and share it? And does AI just completely remove that problem? That's a kind of slightly contentious question. If you can just go to chat GPT and say, give me a learning object on the impact of climate change on um, the Atlantic Ocean and uh, plankton or something. It'll produce you something pretty good. And you can refine those prompts, I think. And that's what, you know, this kind of prompt engineering is going to become really important. Include some citations and uh, say who the audience is for and those kind of things. So I think you'd be able to get some pretty good content. I think it, you know there's the criticisms that always tends to be a bit generic and a bit bland. I think the stuff you get out of these systems, but 
you know, for someone who wanted to learn, you could just go there and get content pretty quickly. And there's also a big debate about is that content actually openly licensed or if it's drawing on previous content which hasn't been uh, openly licensed, is it? Is it not? But, you know, for, for the for the context of OER, suddenly you've got all this content you can create, boom, there, freely, off you go kind of stuff. And does that really remove the need for OER? Um, or does it just change the, our, our perspective on what constitutes OER um, or how we approach it? And I don't really have answers to that, I don't think. I think it's something we're going to have to explore. And I think it'd be foolish to say, no, no, AI's got nothing to do with OER. It's only content that's produced by people that's important. But equally, I think it would be foolish to say, um, we don't need content produced by humans anymore. We can just go, go to the go to the computer and get what we want. And so I think this kind of comes back to something that I point out in the chapter. As I say, the potential of OER to become mainstream seems always just about to break. And I think that's still true. <laughs> Maybe it's ne it never gets there. And I think this came to fore, particularly during the pandemic. You know, suddenly everyone had to shift their learning online. Not just some people, but everyone. And suddenly they were sort of thrashing around, like, how do we do online learning? And the solution that seemed to be just do uh, Zoom lectures. But also people were trying to find more content they could give to people. And, for instance, um, because they suddenly couldn't give out physical textbooks, they wanted to give out digital textbooks. And we saw, particularly in the UK, uh, a, a massive sort of price hike of digital copies, di digital editions of textbooks by commercial publishers, kind of real price hiking. Um, which led to a, a open textbooks or a textbook SOS campaign. And so that really kind of raised the profile of why we're not using open textbooks, you know, where we could just be sharing this stuff freely anyway and adapting it. Um, so at the end of the pandemic or coming out of it, I, I propose, you know, maybe, maybe now, again, it's just about to break, maybe now this kind of community model of production will come to the fore. People are beginning to realise, hey, wouldn't it be good if we were sharing this content and we were kind of creating it? Um, but I, I sort of naively, or perhaps slightly tongue-in-cheek, we don't seem to have quite cracked the community-based model yet. And uh, David Wiley, quite rightly, I think, pushed back on, on that. And he, said, he quotes uh, Jochen Benklo, he says, The larger the granules, the more is required of each contributor. The smaller the set of agents who will be willing and able to crack at the work. So if you want these big chunks of learning content, you're not going to get many people who do it. On the other hand, if the granularity is determined by the cost of integration, you cannot use modules that are so fine that the cost of integrating them is higher than the value of including the module. So if you have these really small grained things, then just putting them all together becomes too much effort and you may as well just create the content yourself. This kind of sets up a paradox. So David concludes, there's a good argument to be made that a community-based production model for learning content just isn't actually possible. Maybe this brings us back to the AI point. You know, so well, if you can, that takes away some of the the reservations and that actually there is no cost to this to the contribute the, the agents the, the contributors because they can just do it easily um so maybe the the model then shifts much more to being able to sequence these things together and produce wraparound content more more effectively but i think another area that's become really interesting since i wrote the book is um perhaps it's not really so much the content I and mean, that was always part of the criticism of very is that you know it focused too much on the content. And we've seen a, a, sh a shift. So we've certainly seen this with the Gojin uh, members. That the shift of their research has really gone from producing OER and the impact of implementing OER to much more open educational practice. You know, how do you teach with OER? Or how do you open up your, your teaching methods? And so I think perhaps some of the real 
benefits of DOER work. And often we'll see this. I think we saw um, Lorna talk about this, Lorna Campbell talk about this in an earlier podcast about learning standards. It's almost like you have to go through this work to kind of get, the, get out the, the other side. Perhaps it's kind of the real benefits of OER have been the, the kind of models of co-production we've seen in participation and the kind of blurring of boundaries around what constitutes received knowledge that you can go in there and change it is a really important thing. So this has become really important for movements such as decolonizing the curriculum. Suddenly you want your students to be participating and, and changing textbooks or producing their own content and localizing it and saying, you know, what, what's wrong with this content? We don't just receive it. We're not just passive recipients of this stuff. And also you see work around co-designed assessment, you know, students working with their um, educators to come up with an assessment that's meaningful to them. So I think what's been important about OER in many ways, and, and I still believe in it as a concept, you know, as a as a valuable thing to do, it is is the openness aspect of that, you know, opening up the education process more generally. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the audiobook chapter which follows after this. Welcome to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audio version of the book, 25 Years of Ed Tech, written by Martin Weller and published by Athabasca University Press. This community-produced audio version of the book is narrated by a global cast of educators with a new chapter released each week. In addition to the book, there is also an accompanying podcast called Between the Chapters, which contains analysis and discussion of each chapter of the book. For more information on the audio version of the book and the accompanying podcast, or to subscribe, visit 25years.opened.ca. Chapter 11, 2004, Open Educational Resources, read by Catherine Cronin. Now that the foundations of modern ed tech had been laid with the web, CMC, e-learning, and LMS, developments could take place that utilized this basis of awareness and technology. For 2004, the selection was Open Educational Resources, or OER, which represented one such development. In 2001, MIT announced its Open Courseware, OCW, initiative, which marked the real initiation of the OER movement. And in 2002, the first OER were released, and there was a move to engage with different forms of licenses for educational content. The OER concept is a relatively, but perhaps deceptively, simple one, and has remained largely unchanged since the initial MIT project. Creating educational content with an open license so it could be accessed freely and adapted. UNESCO's 2012A definition of an OER is, quote, teaching, learning, and research materials in any medium, digital or otherwise, that reside in the public domain or have been released under an open license that permits no-cost access, use, adaptation, and redistribution by others with no or limited restrictions. End quote. Paragraph 1. A key element to this definition is the stress on the license that permits free use and repurposing. In order to satisfy the above definition, it is not enough simply to be free. It has to be reusable as well. There are different definitions of OER, but they are all quite similar. Unlike the definition debates that dogged learning objects, this fairly clear understanding of the concept of OER has allowed it to develop quickly. Other providers followed the example of MIT. By 2004, a new open education movement was developing, and it had moved beyond being just an experiment by a single institution. 
MIT's goal was to make all the learning materials used by their 1800 courses available via the internet, where the resources could be used and repurposed as desired by others without charge. At the time, this announcement caused a good deal of debate, as it seemed to run counter to the conventional wisdom that, quote, content is king, end quote, and to the online models that sought to develop paid subscription models. Simply giving content away, and not only giving it away, but explicitly giving permission to others to alter it, was a model that many struggled to comprehend. It took an institution with the reputation of MIT to give some credence to this idea, but it should also be noted that MIT was operating from a position of extreme privilege. Giving away its content was unlikely to affect its student recruitment, and much of that content wasn't particularly useful outside of the MIT setting. But what it highlighted, contrary to many of the prophecies of doom we saw in Chapter 6 on e-learning, was that there was more to an education than simply the content. As we saw with learning objects earlier, inspiration had been taken from software coding on reusability of components. The software approach, and in particular open source software, also provided the roots for OER. The open source movement can be seen as creating the context within which open education could flourish, partly by analogy and partly by establishing a precedent, but there was also a very direct link in the figure of David Wiley. Influential in the initial interest around learning objects, he provided a bridge to OER through the development of licenses. In 1998, he became interested in developing an open license for educational content and contacted pioneers in the open source world directly. Out of this came the Open Content License, which he developed with publishers to establish the Open Publication License, or OPL. The OPL proved to be one of the key components, along with the Free Software Foundation's GNU General Public License, in developing the Creative Commons licenses created by Lawrence Lessig and others. Creative Commons, which was founded in 2001, would go on to become the main license that permitted reuse of materials and be widely adopted in the OER movement. In 2004, MIT would adopt Creative Commons and others followed suit. These licenses went on to become essential tools in the open education movement. The simple licenses in Creative Commons allowed users to easily share resources and wasn't restricted to a software code. Key to the Creative Commons licenses was the fact that they were permissive rather than restrictive. They allowed the user to do what the license permitted without seeking permission. These licenses became a very practical requirement for the OER movement to persuade institutions and individuals to release content openly with the knowledge that their intellectual property was still maintained. The OER movement has been something of a success story compared with some of the developments we cover in this book. There is a global OER movement with at least three annual international conferences on the subject and OER repositories in most major languages. Funding has been provided by foundations such as Hewlett and national bodies such as JISC in the UK. And sustainable models that do not require external funding have begun to emerge, such as the Open University's Open Learn Project, Perryman Law and Law 2013. The OER world map lists nearly 1,000 institutions globally that are using OER and nearly 500 OER projects, while Creative Commons has estimated that there are over 1 billion CC licensed resources. Creative Commons 2015. This demonstrates a steady but not spectacular impact. When MOOC became headline news, many in the OER field could only wonder why they attracted such attention when many of the same claims of newsworthiness could be made about OER. 
the potential of OER to become a mainstream seems always just about to break. This nearly there phenomenon is a recurring theme in edtech, for example, with artificial intelligence. Here are some areas on which OER could have a significant impact, and although the results are currently small scale, there is promise. Student retention. Students in formal education at all levels often use OER to support their learning. Weller, De Los Arcos, Farrow, Pitt, and McAndrew, 2015. Currently, this is done on their own initiative, but educators could make better use of promoting OER to offer a broader range of material. Student recruitment. Higher education is increasingly expensive in many countries, so the idea of trying a subject for a year and then switching to a different course is not always feasible. In order to facilitate effective course choice, Simpson, 2004, the provision of OER is an ideal way for students to explore if the subject meets their interest. Student costs. This is often couched in terms of open textbooks for formal learners, as we shall see later, but also more broadly in terms of allowing access to educational content that would otherwise be unaffordable for informal learners. Pedagogic variety. Teachers, colleges, and universities all struggle with the issue of appropriate staff development, updating the curriculum, and incorporating technology. The use of OER by teachers led to teachers reflecting on their own practice, Weller et al. 2015, and resulted in them incorporating a greater variety of content and approaches in their teaching. This desire for OER to break through may be misplaced, however. It is not the case that all educators need to be aware of OER for them to benefit. Seaman and Seaman in 2017 reported that awareness of OER amongst OER educators was low, 10% very aware and 20% aware, but was growing annually. And in 2018, awareness amongst U.S. educators had reached 50%, Seaman and Seaman 2018. More broadly, though, open education in general and OER specifically form a basis from which many other practices benefit but often practitioners in those areas are unaware of OER explicitly. These secondary and tertiary levels of OER awareness likely represent a far greater audience than the primary one. So the sizes of these audiences can be viewed like the metaphorical iceberg, with increasing size in successive categories. OER users then can be classified as follows. Primary OER users. This group is, quote, OER aware, end quote in that the term itself will have a meaning for them, they are engaged with issues around open education, are aware of open licenses, and are often advocates for OER. This group has often been the focus of OER funding, conferences, and research, with the goal of growing the ranks of this audience. Secondary OER users. This group may have some awareness of OER or open licenses, but they have a pragmatic approach to them. OER are of secondary interest to their primary task, which is usually teaching. OER, and openness in general, can be seen as the substratum which allows some of their practice to flourish, but they are neither aware nor interested in open education itself. Rather, they are interested in their own area, and therefore, OER are only of interest to the extent that they facilitate innovation or efficiency in this. Tertiary OER users. This group will use OER amongst a mix of other media and often not differentiate between them. Awareness of licenses is low and not a priority. OER are a nice-to-have option, but not essential, and users are often largely consuming rather than creating and sharing. Wiley, in 2009, raised the concept of, quote, dark reuse, end quote. 
That is, whether reuse is happening in places that can't be observed, analogous to dark matter, or it simply isn't happening much at all. He poses the challenge to the OER movement about its aims. Quote, if our goal is catalyzing and facilitating significant amounts of reuse and adaptation of materials, we seem to be failing. If our goal is to create fantastically popular websites loaded with free content visited by millions of people each month who find great value in the content but never adapt or remix it, then we're doing fairly well. Paragraphs four and five. By considering these three levels of OER engagement, it is possible to see how both elements of Wiley's goals are realizable. The main focus of OER initiatives has often been the primary OER usage group. Here, OER are created and there are OER advocacy missions. For example, Wild in 2012 suggested a ladder of engagement for higher education staff that progresses from piecemeal to strategic to embedded use of OER. The implicit assumption is that one should encourage progression through these levels. That is, the route to success for OER is to increase the population of the primary OER group. However, another approach may be to increase the penetration of OER into the secondary and tertiary levels. Awareness of OER repositories was very low amongst this group, compared with resources such as the Khan Academy or TED. The focus for improving uptake for these groups, then, is to increase visibility, search engine optimization, and convenience of the resources themselves without knowledge of open education. This might be realized by creating a trusted brand to compete with resources, such as TED. OER has many strong advocates, and UNESCO, 2012b, for example, phrased its promotion of OER in terms of supporting human rights to education. The OER movement is not without its critics, however, which stem from both practical and ideological bases. For example, Knox, in 2013, offered five criticisms of OER, including an under-theorization of openness, privileging the institution, and a lack of focus on pedagogy. Almeida, in 2017, also addressed some of the political reservations, suggesting that OER reinforce a neoliberal perspective and devalue academic labor. For Kortmeier, in 2013, it was the lack of significant change in higher education a decade after the launch of OER that was the issue. Perhaps one of the strongest criticisms of OER is that they focus on content, often to the exclusion of pedagogy and support structures. They are guilty of reinforcing a model based on the autodidact or on implementation through existing educational systems. For example, UNESCO in 2018 updated its previous recommendations, but the focus remained on the provision of content. Given UNESCO's goal to, quote, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong opportunities for all, end quote, OER represent a necessary starting point, but they are not an end point, and it is the learner support that is associated with the content that is a necessary component of any OER system. For example, UNESCO's, quote, sustainability models for OER, end quote, are aimed at finding ways to fund the creation of OER, but are silent on the need for models that will support learners. The sorts of learners one might envisage using OER in an equitable, lifelong learning scenario often lack the confidence or the necessary learning skills to make effective use of them. As we saw in Chapter 6 on e-learning, supporting students is by far the most expensive part of the open education system, but it is also the most impactful. 
An OER solution that ignores how this support is delivered is not sufficiently dealing with the problem that OER set out to address. However, even with these reservations, OER represents something of a success story in EdTech, growing into a global movement since its early days. It may not have transformed education in quite the way it was envisaged back in 2004, and many projects have floundered once funding ends. But through open textbooks and open educational practice, or OEP, it continues to adapt and be relevant. The general lessons from OER are that they largely succeeded where learning objects have failed because they tapped into existing practice, and open textbooks doubly so. The concept of sharing educational content with a license that doesn't restrict this distribution is alien enough without all the accompanying standards and concepts associated with learning objects. The component parts needed to be in place. In this case, the digital platform, open licenses, and the concept of sharing educational content. Thank you for listening to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audiobook version of Martin Weller's 25 Years of Ed Tech, published by Athabasca University Press and narrated by a global cast of volunteers. Intro music for the podcast is Abstract Corporate by Grib Sound and released under a Creative Commons attribution license. To subscribe to the weekly audio series and the accompanying podcast between the chapters, visit 25years.opened.ca. Thanks for listening to Metaphors of EdTech. Remember to subscribe if this is your bag. Uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there.